Alright, hello and welcome to the Antifada. We're on Russ's Best. I'm AP Andy. I am Sean KB. And we've got one of our oldest and favorite guests here to talk about his life, all of his tw- Twitter spats. So we got Jake Flores in the house. Hey guys, man, I'm so fucking stoked. This is going to be the podcast of the century. Uh, we're going to drop so much knowledge. We're going to start so much beef. It's going to be fucking crazy, dude. It's going to be like... Like the original Marins with with Mencia, there's gonna be so much talk on Reddit about this. It's I'm like I'm just brimming with content right now. So we might as well start. Um, I gotta go to the bathroom though. I'll be right back. All, All right, right, cool, man. Yeah, we, we look forward to it. I guess we'll record without him for a little bit, right? All right. Uh, while Jake's in the bathroom, maybe I can just interview my old friend Sean who oh, knows hi. a lot about history and economics. Sure. His Marxist power levels are much higher <laughs> than he lets on. I have been in a capital reading group with this man <laughs> and it is fucked up how much you know about capital. Oh, well, thank you. I uh, I spent a lot of time reading. Um, that's my thing. So uh, I'm happy to talk just about Just capital, like, right? Just capital over yeah. and over and over. You know, I actually know a guy that has uh, read Capital Volume 1 pretty much every year for the last 30 years. It's not David Harvey. Who is it? It's Billy. Construction worker Billy. Crazy union Billy. What? You don't know Billy? That guy with the tattoos on his hands? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That guy reads Capital every year? Every year he reads Capital. Is it just like the only thing he reads? I think so, yeah. He's like some scum fuck from uh, Hell's Kitchen with hand tattoos, and he's like, uh, he's in the iron workers. He's a good friend. He's got a uh, Marx tattoo, right? I believe so, yeah. And so we're going to talk today. I want to interview Sean, actually. Oh, wow. Okay. I, I recently saw the new Quentin Tarantino film, Hollywood Nights, and uh, it really got me wondering what was up with the Manson family and if that story that they told wasn't quite true. And I know Sean's a Manson head. He's got a swastika tattooed on his forehead. Um, wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> he. That's why he has bangs. It's like <laughs> high up on his forehead. Right. So. Um, so you've been doing some research on Manson recently, just um, because you're weird. Yes. And uh, so what? What have you come up with? Well, you know, I've had a lot of time on my hands, and I believe that I started getting back into Manson recently because that film came out. That Tarantino film came out, and they had. Various articles about, you know, what happened literally 50 years ago this month, which were the killings by members of Manson's family, as they called it, as he called it. So, yeah, I read uh, a couple of books. One was a straight biography of Charles Manson, and the other one was a real fucking, I don't know, brain twister. It was uh, basically like a conspiratorial take on what happened in 1969. But uh, it doesn't take you to directions that you think you would go to. Okay, so I like to think that my family is pretty weird. (laughs) What was up with these Manson guys? Manson guys and gals? Well, for folks who don't know, I don't know how you would not know the Manson story, but uh, Charlie Manson as a a convict, a man who spent most of his life in prison up to the point where uh, his followers did these murders, was a very charismatic but also very, very twisted man. And um, he used sexual abuse and um, cult behavior and also LSD in order to bring around him a 
basically a cadre of, say, two, three dozen people, mostly women, but also some men, uh, who would bend completely to his will and who he could allegedly direct to do essentially whatever Charlie Manson wanted them to do. And they drank Fago, right? <laughs> Are you trying to imply that um, ICP is continuing the dream of the Manson family? ICP is co-intel pro oh, designed shit. to attract the kind of people who would otherwise go to Manson-esque figures. Right, right. Straight to Fi- Violent J and Shaggy <laughs> 2 Dope. Real names, CIA agent Smith and CIA <laughs> agent Johnson. Okay. Well, my understanding is that uh, the murders that happened in 69 uh, that uh, you were talking about, there are, there are a lot of people out there who are followers of Manson to this day, despite the whole helter-skelter thing. So I'm not alone in being a, a Manson stan, right? Yeah, you might, unfortunately, find yourself meeting somebody who's really into a toit, which is air, trees, water, animals, mm. uh, which... So maybe you can clear this up to me. It always seemed like kind of this retroactive environmentalist PR campaign for Manson because, uh, you know, according to the, the dominant story or the, you know, probably the Bugliosi story is that the Manson family got really into like apocalypse and mm-hmm. race war mm-hmm. and had some racial theories. But if you meet like a Manson defender today, they might say that that's not true. And he really just believed that we needed to defend the earth at all costs and but he didn't kill anyone or wasn't a Nazi. My understanding of his racism, because yes, that's a big part of Helter Skelter. If you believe Vincent Belosi, Bugliosi, is it? Bugliosi. 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 If you believe him, then uh, race war... Vincent (laughs) Bugliosi. He's definitely said that at some point. Oh, a thousand times. He's a real prick. I I actually read interviews of him uh, in this one book, and uh, boy, is he an asshole. And boy, did he ride that Manson train all the way to the fucking bank. According to Helter Skelter, right, this is the important thing, is that Andy's alluding to this this, um, narrative that Charles Manson creates this very paranoid, delusional, and ultimately violent vision of how an apocalypse is going to come and how he, as Charles Manson, but also the reincarnation of Jesus Christ, is going to lead his followers and ultimately humanity to the promised land. They will go through this race war where African Americans will rise up and they will destroy the state. They will destroy society. Yet, African Americans are not smart enough or capable enough to run a society. So who are they going to look towards? Of course, they would look towards Charles Manson, who's hiding because in a the- secret city in the desert, waiting for the end of the race war so he can rise up and lead the blacks to ultimate salvation. And it's because they're the last remaining white people. And yes. Whoa. We shouldn't have killed all of them. Yeah. They're smarter than us. We got to go find the last ones. Oh, no. (laughs) They're fucking insane hippies who have lived underground for (laughs) seven years at least. We'll see. But they're better than us. (laughs) What you're missing is that, see, if you listen to the White Album by the Beatles and also read uh, the Book of Revelation, John's Revelation, every single night, for two or three years uh, on acid, you yeah. would understand why your objection to this is completely absurd. And actually, maybe you're racist yourself for objecting to Helter Skelter. So you're saying everyone who is that stupid a racist has done that much acid? 
and love potentially and love that much white album yeah I, I think that might be right so like i think the racism thing cannot be denied and the people who kind of post ex, ex facto try to go back and say that charlie manson and his family were um were good guys and just environmentalists and were looking out for the interests of humanity i think they kind of have it backwards but i also think that um, that's maybe not the most interesting part about the Manson story, as I read in this excellent new book that came out for the 50th anniversary of the Tate LaBianca La- La killings, which is Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the secret history of the 60s. Now, yeah. if you're a millennial, yeah. you might think that Sh- uh, Sharon Tate and the LaBiancas were not killed. Uh, I won't say why you might think that, but a lot of listeners probably know why I say that. Uh, They were. They were not saved by a wife-killing superhero. (laughs) Uh, They were were killed. So continue. They were killed a lot, too. Yeah. They weren't even just a little bit killed. They were killed with, uh, I think, 103 stab wounds at the Tate House uh, and several bullets as well. And what did they write on the wall with the blood of these people well in the tate scene they wrote um pig on the door and um they also wrote um rise but then of course the manson family allegedly went back to kill more people two nights later at the la bianca house and they wrote helter skelter in their blood on their refrigerator and allegedly too they ate food out of their freezer after they murdered them in their living room, which uh, Bernadette Dorn from the Weather Underground at the time said she, she dug that a lot and that killing the bourgeoisie and sticking forks in them when they're dead and then eating out of their freezer was a revolutionary act. So that's some Weather Underground shit. I don't know. Folks, you might think the Weather Underground is cool because of that <laughs> movie. They were fucking stupid. They and were rich kids. I invite you to read... I mean, it wasn't... You can't blame it on them being rich. I guess that was a big part of it. But yeah, read the weather reader of their like speeches and texts and stuff. They were really dumb. And you would have to be dumb to think there was something good about Charles Manson. He's just an oogle or a juggalo. Yeah. Uh, he was and, pre-juggalo. You know, yeah. and you got to respect that he was squatting that ranch and shit, but not all squatters are good. Well, they were squatting the Spawn Ranch uh, out in California, outside mm-hmm. of L.A. And actually, allegedly... According to these books, um, they bought off Spawn with sexual favors because you have to understand that Charles Manson had gone to prison one of the times he went to prison. He went to prison many times for essentially pimping. Right. The man wanted to be a pimp. He wanted to run women and he wanted to control women. So when pimping, it turns out to not be easy. And he gets out of prison during the song wasn't written yet. So there's no way he could have known. (laughs) How would he know? All the songs that time is like. Pimpin's easy. Pimpin's easy. That's a Beatles song, right? Yeah, Pimpin' is easy. Uh-huh. I think that's off of Abbey Road, though. That's a little <laughs> later. All right, let's not jump ahead here. Yeah, um, he he uses the skills that he learned as a really bad pimp. Like, he was really lousy at it. The only thing he was successful at was, like, getting busted for taking prostitutes across state lines. But he used those skills he had and the desire he always had to dominate women and, by extension, men as well, in order to, let's say, inculcate in his followers, again, through sexual abuse, consensual sex, but how consensual can you be if you're, like, an 18-year-old street urchin 
pulled off the streets of Haight Ashbury, who like is all of a sudden li- living with an insane cult leader who gives you acid for every fucking meal. It- it's hard to say what's consensual at, at that point. But yeah, he he used his charisma and his magnetism to essentially brainwash these people with drugs, and he created a sexual harem for himself. And then he got more followers, men and women, by kind of doling out sexual favors and dominating all these people. He'd set up orgies, not just for people in the family, but people outside the family who he'd want to basically get on his side or get a favor from. He would basically invite them over to, to the ranch, one of his various ranches, uh, in order to fuck and get head and all this shit so that they would be on Charles Manson's side and they would get favored. So he was very much a manipulative guy and he very much knew the power of using sex and sexuality and also drugs and also just raw power to Mm. dominate and control people. Sounds like somebody who's been in the news recently. Talking about Jeffrey Epstein? Mr. Joe Biden. Oh, Joe Biden. (laughs) Wow. That's an interesting connection. I thought you were talking about Epstein because if we're going to talk... So basically... You know, 68 in California. It's a groovy time. It's happening time. Bourgeois kids or just all kinds of people are just like dropping out of their lives and going to hate Ashbury, going to L.A., going to these kind of post-urban communes all over the country. There's this the start of the back to the land movement. There's a lot of revolutionary people, a lot of like black militants. Yeah. So all this stuff is going on at the same time, but it quickly turns bad. And it really, you know, like the very classic narrative of fear and loathing and all this stuff is the epicenter of it turning bad is like San Francisco and the L.A. Valley in that area. So Manson's got this group of dropout hippies. He's got them eating out of the palm of his hand. They think he's Jesus. Um, how does this turn into the murder spree? Well, it's important to disaggregate the common story, the Bugliosi story of Helter Skelter, which was merely... Don't listen to Bugliosi. (laughs) Don't listen to Vincent. Listen to Squeaky. (laughs) In the normal telling of it, right? The the, the narrative that you would get normally. And this might be true, for all I know, because I haven't really come down on either side. Um, It is the paranoia of Manson, but also the kind of growing uh, hedonism and decadence of the hippies that leads Manson to basically become, you know, this avatar of what happens when you, you know, uh, discard all bourgeois norms, when you, you know, have free love, when you have free drugs. And in Bugliosi's narrative in Helter Skelter, Manson essentially becomes more and more paranoid. And he's got this vision of a race war coming, but the race war won't come. So what he decides to do is basically make the race war happen faster so that the apocalypse can happen faster. So he sends his minions over to kill these famous people and these rich people and frame... It was a literal minion death cult. (laughs) Yes, it was. And frame the Black Panthers for it. So the idea was if he could frame the Black Panthers, then the heat would come down on the Black Panthers. The Black Panthers would have to rise up, and therefore they would fight the cops and they would kick off the race war. So really, Helter Skelter was seen as a way, or at least the killings anyways, were seen as a way, a kind of propaganda of the deed, uh, a way to, to kind of uh, to, to bring this, this apocalypse forward. But that said... There's a different narrative, and that's where this chaos book comes in. Because it might seem like this 
Manson story is a little bit too pat, right? You mentioned in everybody's eyes, you know, Manson is this, he's this, this moment in time that people look to where the good dream of the 60s goes bad. It mm-hmm. turns dark. You have bad that trip. bad trip. And then you have Altamont, too, which was a festival north of San Francisco around that time. Where they had this really good idea. Get this. <laughs> so you've, you've got a big festival. Woodstock just happened. It was like a total disaster, but it was great. You want to do that on the West Coast. Right. Don't, don't get like a normal security. No. That's going to be too much money. That's not that's yep. square. It's normie as hell. Don't hire ex-cops. You don't want cops. You want to hire the Hell's Angels. The Hell's Angels. That's how you run a Very festival. Very reputable. Yeah. Good folk. Good yeah. people. They definitely will not um, stab a black guy right no. in front of the Rolling Stones for touching their motorcycle. The Hell's Angels aren't racist. No. They, oh, they're an all-white. They're <laughs> legit, like, no, still to this day, it's all white. Um, yeah. Yeah, maybe don't hire them to do security. <laughs> for all of you um, festival Mick, promoters out there. Mick, if you're there. listening. Yeah. I know you're listening, Mick. Oh, God. Did he do it? It wasn't his fault, right? No, he didn't do it. It was those fucking hippies up there. Well, they were they were coming off of the summer of love, right? Like you mentioned, Woodstock. Mm-hmm. It it seemed to these people that um, their vision, which is a very a, a vision that ultimately is very recuperatable back into essentially yeah. what becomes neoliberalism, but they had a very almost almost Rousseauian conception of who the who the human was, and almost like Stalin, you know, they're trying to create a new free humankind, right? That would be beyond all of the hang-ups that people had before. So how could anything possibly go wrong if people are ultimately good, especially if they're fucking and taking mm-hmm. drugs all the time? Of yeah, course and if you're be- paying them well, oh, you weren't paying them, you were just giving them beer? Um, right, yeah. I mean, so our listeners, like, you weren't at Woodstock like we were, but we were it was, there. you know, it wasn't the idyllic picture that people per- portray it as. It was a... It was basically it was Woodstock. A muddy mess. It was like Woodstock '99, but like someone cut the fence. Right, right. And they just, you know, back then they just couldn't do anything. And they it. weren't charging five dollars for a water, but people were still, you know, were still a little deprived up there. It got a little wild. And also, you've probably heard that part of the Jimi Hendrix "Star Spangled Banner." That's good, but if you listen to the whole thing, that's a, just a great metaphor for Woodstock because uh. people just hear the part of that song that's like rocking and good. And the truth of it was that it was like 14 minutes long, and most of it was just like Hendrix was probably like asleep during part of it. <laughs> it's so fucking bad. I'll do it. As, I'll put it as the yeah, outro it, so people know what I'm end. talking about. Because yeah. people don't believe me. It's like, yeah, it's really fucking bad. <laughs> so people are going to listen to the two of us, and then 14 minutes of just squealing right. uh, Star Spangled Banner. Uh, like, this is, I mean, this is kind of a metaphor for this episode, too, I yeah, think. Yeah, it could be. I mean, when Jake gets back, he can tell us what his idea yeah, he's gonna, is. Yeah, we're just biding time until yeah. he gets back. So the killings have been ordered in Bugliosi's version. What's another version of the story? Well, I strongly encourage everybody who is uh, into prolet cult especially and into that weird deep politics shit and parapolitics and high weirdness to check out this uh, Tom O'Neill book because the, story, the, the book tells two stories. The first story is an author himself who is given three months to write an article for the 30th anniversary of the Manson killings. As it turns out, it takes him 20 years mm. to write this book right here 
because he gets pulled down into this vast web of conspiracy of um, sick. of fucking. Um, it wasn't so simple. No, <clears throat> he finds he basically what he starts to do is he starts to find holes in the Bugliosi story, and as he finds these holes, he realizes that everything is really fucking pat. And as he interviews more and more people and FOIAs more and more documents, these very interesting and bizarre possibilities arise uh, in the Manson murder. And he never, at the end of the book, he doesn't wrap it all up in a bow and tell you this is exactly what happens. But what he does to do is point to five or six major issues that exist with the narrative that we're given. And the way that that narrative is punctured implies very strongly that there was, as the title says, Operation Chaos involved, the CIA involved, and all other sorts of dark forces uh, that you would know if you were interested in, say, the JFK assassination conspiracy theories. A lot of the same actors exist uh, in his story, as do uh, you know, Gladio or, or something like that. Or even the, uh, the Martin Luther King killer. Kevin Costner? Yes, Kevin Costner. As Bugliosi. Vincent Bugliosi. I don't know what Vince Bugliosi looks like, but he probably looks like Kevin Costner. He's a fish-eyed fuck. All right. So <laughs> un- that was an incredible lead-in to something that I can't imagine you explaining. That you were a fish fan when you were a kid, and you want to talk about Woodstock oh and Oh, my fish. God, no. No? So nowhere does Tom O'Neill directly refute what happened uh, in that, on that August night in 1969 at the Tate House or at the LaBianca House. What he does instead is point to the ways in which what happened that summer was very, very much overlapped with various different government programs that were meant to be counterintelligence programs, that were meant to be programs that disrupted the left, programs that were meant to... I don't know, do experimentations on, on human beings uh, around things like drugs. And so, of course, I'm talking about Operation Chaos, which was a CIA operation started in 1967 to combat the left. I'm talking about COINTELPRO, which is originally from 1956, but Hoover brings back in a big way in response to the rise of especially black militancy, but also just sort of the you know, the rise of the new left in general. Today known as the Insane Clown Posse. Yes, thank you. The ICP. And of course, let's not forget, too, that this is happening in 1969, these killings and this crazy LSD sex cult. But there was also a program that was a defense program and had a lot of different uh, supporters within the U.S. government called MK Ultra. So, Andy, tell us about MK Ultra. What was the point of MK Ultra? You jump in here with your prolet cult hat. MK Ultra was just it was a contest for the coolest name that you could have for a secret project. Shaggy Two Dope One. And uh yeah, MK Ultra is just the coolest name. It looks great on a sticker to just post around uh Bedsty saying Google MK Ultra, <laughs> it looks good. You wanna do it. You wanna do it. And you probably should because you yeah. run a conspiracy theory podcast yeah but you only do the podcast once a month so right. you don't you're not like really an expert so maybe you don't google it right don't google um it. but so i but you know i this hypothetical hypothetical I, d- yeah. I know what it is yeah but why don't you tell me what you think it is and i'll tell you <laughs> if you're right or wrong please do because okay. I, I honestly really want your opinion on okay. this as the the man of the deep arts in the house yes, uh, yes. in the loft um 
So my understanding is that MK Ultra rises after the in the midst of the Korean War because US bomber pilots had been shot down over North Korea and the Kim Il sung regime basically had them on tape saying to the world and to the United States admitting that they had actually used biological weapons on the North Koreans in the Korean War and so the United States the people in the government said there's no way that that could be true i mean as it turns out it probably was true so they must have been brainwashed mm-hmm. so this conception of brainwashing arises and they the government the def- defense department especially tries to figure out all these different ways in which you can basically wash somebody's mind and make them either do what you want or forget about things that they had done in the past at the same time a new drug had arisen LSD which um they thought would be the perfect sort of truth serum slash hypnotizing slash brainwashing device that they could use on their enemies in order to uh, brainwash them in, w- within the Cold War, of course, where it was very important that the United States have a leg up on those crazy Soviets. Okay, so you've gotten me as far as I made it in that Netflix series about this. Oh, good. Where it was just like, um, this is too many episodes, just get to the point. And I started reading the Wikipedia page, but then I fell asleep. So continue from where I fell asleep, which did, was around where you left. Did you it. ever see the Errol Morris thing on Netflix? That's what I'm talking about. Oh, Wormwood, that, that, yeah. yeah, that's great. Wormwood's awesome. People I, should definitely check that out. I did see um, some of it, and I said, I got other stuff to do. You Maybe should. make this a little shorter. Wow, okay. Well, you should really watch it. <laughs> okay, I, mean, I will. Uh, Errol, Errol Morris is really good. I mean, I, I resent the fact that he's a nepotism case because his son, um, son from Vice Magazine, got him the job. All to right, do that. all right, leave him alone. Haha, <laughs> sorry. What's what's the son's name? Hamilton Nolis Norris. <laughs> Hamilton Nolis. <laughs> Hamilton No Lisp. Um, Stop quoting Lin Manuel Miranda. <laughs> <laughs> so. According to this book, there were several figures that were very big within MKUltra that ended up in the California, the state of California in the 60s, allegedly, allegedly involved in a continuation of these LSD experiments, which, of course, by this point, were tied into making the left look like shit, making the left fight with, you know, fight amongst itself and... The implication, of course, is that Charles Manson was part of these MK Ultra experiments, or he may have been the fruition of MK Ultra, because all through his time, especially in Haight Ashbury, but also in LA, he is surrounded by people who have CIA, FBI, and intelligence connections. And it just so happens that the murders that the Manson family commits does an excellent job of doing COINTELPRO, right? Because what did the what did Hoover and the FBI and the CIA and and the uh, Johnson, you know, President Lyndon Baines Johnson, want to do? Well, they wore women's clothing sometimes, but that's I don't see why that's such a big Listen, deal. Listen, so what was the government trying to do at this time? Uh, they were trying to discredit the left, and they were especially interested. And there's actually documents uh, by Hoover that say that. His biggest, the threat that he saw that was the biggest were the Black Panthers and black militants in general, of course, because Hoover was a serious racist. And um, also because, of course, the Black Panthers and the U.S. United Slaves and, 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 the, and the Latino movement and the, uh, the American Indian movement was rising kind of at the same time as and 
together with anti-colonial struggles that were popping off all over the world. Yeah, they should have been scared. They should. They, they, it was like all of the people that have been fucked over forever yeah. taking up arms and organizing. Exactly. Which actually remind me later, like um, the one takeaway I got from this book and all the readings that I've done, because I also read a book on Hoover and I read a book on COINTELPRO. Yeah, that's four books. Haha, <laughs> I read four books. Um, that uh, as it turns out, the ruling class and their lackeys are the greatest conspiracy theorists. If you look at all of their thinking, because they thought communists were behind everything. They literally, the reason why the CIA and Operation Chaos was involved on domestic soil was because they assumed that none of the shit, you know, the free love, you know, the, the, the drug use, the Woodstock, uh, the new left, none of this could, be, could happen without it being directly um, influenced by or even led by Moscow I mean, or Beijing. This is, this is That's the paranoia. Specter. That's the specter uh, of specter. communism. That's right, yeah. It, you've got everything. You control society. Everyone... There's like no communists in the United States. There's like 700 Trotskyists. And you're, you just got to fucking put their names on a list because you just don't want that many. Like you just have to destroy them. Destroy you them, You can't yeah. tolerate it. Can't and tolerate they're not it. wrong. No, I mean, Because those 700 Trotskyists. It spreads fast, I tell you. The SWP. They start small, but they grow up. They're they like, grow up. <laughs> the Trotsky virus. Yeah, so... The um, if you look at what happens after the murders, you realize that you could not have created a better way to disrupt the new left and basically pit black militants against white social democrats than by essentially having a hippie, uh, like a free love new left hippie, kill a bunch of rich famous people and blame it on the Black Panthers. Mm. And another implication in the book is that the Los Angeles Sheriff's Office, along with the LAPD, along with potentially also the FBI and others, protected Manson for four months. Remember, it's four months after these killings that Manson is still free and on the loose and running around. The implication is that they protected him because they wanted it to be blamed on the Black Panthers. Mm. They were finding ways. In fact, the um, Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski and their gang uh, were part of a political party, a small party in California called the Peace and Freedom Party. The Peace and Freedom Party was associated with the White Panthers, and wow. in fact, they were f- they were friends with the Black Panthers. That's Tate true. and Roman, Pol- yes, of course it is. They were they were active supporters of the Black Panthers and black militancy in general as good liberals at that time. And so what better way to draw white liberals away from this, uh, this sweet, you know, uh, exotic sauce of uh, black militancy than to have people blame the Black Panthers for killing rich white people. It's fucking brilliant. You're blowing my mind. Am I really? Yeah, I didn't know this shit. Oh, yeah, it's, it's great stuff. So, like, to, be, to be serious, like I have... I have like read like some Wikipedia articles about the Manson stuff, but really never. And I listened to the last podcast on the left series about it too, which is great. But yeah, I, I haven't read any of the books. Well, so I have all this secondhand like, oh yeah, the Bugliosi stuff. You, gotta, <laughs> you know, Manson had some bad ideas. And he had some good. Yeah, I'm like, I have like a fake nuanced opinion on it. Um, but so you're what you're saying is. Uh, there was a plan, either from Manson or from Tex, right, 
there was there the implication also is that that manson was involved in this the question is for what reason well okay so so like in general though manson tax somebody had this idea of doing these murders and framing the black panthers for it yes more or less to start a race war yes um and it sounds like a crazy plan but what you're saying is it worked for a time for a where time the, the LAPD just saw it as like a convenient way to crack down on the Black Panthers. It's even worse than that or not worse, but more interesting. I suppose there's an interesting character that pops up about halfway through the book and his name is Reeve Whitman Reeves Whitman. And he's this kind of mysterious figure at that time. And the author Tom O'Neill is trying to kind of take all these dots and place them together. He's trying to figure out, because again, he's in this process of discovery himself. Where, how do you connect all these dots together between all these, you know, state agencies and the hippie shit happening and the militancy happening, and ultimately like this ver- these very vicious and brutal murders? Um, you know, wh- how do we make sense of this? And he discovers Reeve Whitman, and this guy, at least a dozen people that he interviewed, said that he was working for the CIA. And he was intimately involved with almost every actor in the story, in Bugliosi's story even, right? He's involved with all these different actors, including his parole officer, Manson's parole officer, including the guy that ran the uh, Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic, where Manson spent a ton of time and potentially also learned how to use LSD in a hypnotizing way. Uh, He also, it was confirmed by several people, you, did you know that Manson showed up at the, the Tate house after the murders and rearranged the crime scene? <laughs> I, I heard something about that. Yeah. yeah. So according to the book, and he has people you know, witness to this, Manson didn't arrive alone. There was a mystery man with him that several people pointed to, and it was confirmed that that mystery man was this Reeve Whitman guy, and this Reeve Whitman guy is... Had cornrows and was wearing white (laughs) clown face paint. Yes, because that's what you do in the CIA. He was a CIA operative, and he was deeply involved in undermining the He was down with the the clown. He was down with the clown. If the clown is Uncle Sam, he was down with the clown. Uncle Sam is a clown. He is a fucking clown. We're getting, like, super (laughs) anti-imperialist on this episode. Like, the left was great until the CIA Koi Intel Pro moved in. This is, like, counterpunch radio right now. Yeah, I know. I love it. We're like, this is full MLM shit. When it's just boys chat, you know, we get a little uh, Marxist, Leninist, Maoist. And that's mm-hmm. fine. I think Brett would be very proud of us, Brett from Rev Left Radio. I don't know if, do you think Jake has anything to say about Maoism or third worldism? We'll, we'll wait. It's fine. We'll wait for him. I think it'd be funny if we actually recorded until he came back. <laughs> it's like 3 a.m. We're only at, <laughs> we're probably with cuts. We're at 35 minutes. Okay. So fine. This is great, yeah, though. It's fun. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what do you make of a confirmed CIA agent being with Charles Manson after the murders at the house rearranging the crime scene and also having his hands in all these different areas of basically ruling class society in Los Angeles at that time? I think it's, I don't know, it's pretty curious, I'd say. Coincidence? Maybe I he was just not. coming to rearrange yeah. the furniture at the same time, just coincidentally. Coincidentally. He also had ties to the mafia. And he also, because this is Los Angeles, he had ties, huge ties to the defense industry, all right? So, like, don't forget that Southern California at this time is the beneficiary of billions of dollars of U.S. military funding. And a lot of the advanced weapon systems that existed at that time were made 
designed in Southern California. So Los next Angeles to, was a hotbed next of to spy activity. This um, other ranch where Buffalo Springfield lived. And there's this other, there's a conspiracy theory. There's um, something happening here. That I can't go into right what now because I'm too. Exactly. You're too much on CBD right now. You just admit it to everybody. It's fine. Yes. I've got a problem. And <laughs> I'm, a I'm working problem. on it. Yeah. I'm working on it. I understand. We've all been there, man. We've uh, all had our ups Google, and downs. Yeah. Google uh, Buffalo Springfield, COINTELPRO, Chemtrail. Is that a real thing? Counterpunch. Wow. Oh, Counterpunch. Yeah. When did Counterpunch become so shitty, or has it's, it always been shitty? As far as I know, it's always been like that. You know, the the only thing that I found decent over the years was uh, Coburn. And then when he died... Um, He's not dead. Alexander Coburn? He's dead as fuck. Is there a different Coburn? There's two. There's three. Oh, He's one of, okay. His, his father was Claude Coburn, who was a famous communist uh, reporter in Britain who reported from the Spanish Civil War. And uh, he has three brothers, or two brothers, rather. It's, there was Alexander Coburn, there was Patrick Coburn, and Andrew Coburn, and they were all reporters. I just had this spooky feeling that the, uh, the radio war nerd I just listened to was with a, a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that Brechter guy had a... Uh... <laughs> uh, but getting back to Hollywood tales. This is definitely um, boys chat. There's a movie that you haven't seen. That relates to There's this many, stuff. many movies I haven't seen. What is but it? But there's one that's in theaters now. It's called oh, Hollywood yeah. Tales by Quentin Tarantino. It's got uh, Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio mm-hmm. in it. Is that right? It, is, it Leo, deals... is Leo fat? Because I heard he got really fat. No, he's fine. He looks fine. Yeah, yeah. I, he's a very decadent man. He would have he would have fit right in in the 1960s. He has like sex harems and he's a drunk and just smokes. Crack. What are you talking about? Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> Leo smokes crack. <laughs> I, I may have made that last part up, but I wouldn't put it past him. <laughs> He's so definitely nobody drunk. Would, nobody was smoking crack in the, the decadent 70s, right? I mean, they were freebasing. That's why you had to create crack. That's why the government had to create yeah, crack, because yeah, yeah. freebase was too hard to make. If you were Richard Pryor, you'd blow your face off with that All shit. All right, so let, let's get back to MKUltra. So <laughs> yeah, MKUltra. Leonardo DiCaprio invents crack <laughs> as part of Pro With Manuel Noriega. And that's MKUltra. Right, yep. That was uh, what they stamped the vials with. It wasn't. It wasn't that MK uh, mid shit. It was yeah, MK yeah. Ultra. It was like the best, highest quality <laughs> crack. MK they were Ultra, gonna call it Kind Crack, dude, but that didn't have the same ring to it. MK Ultra and Kind Crack are both definitely strains of weed. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say they were both um, neo folk bands. <laughs> <laughs> no, Kind Crack is a rapper. And I'm surprised there's no rapper <laughs> named MK Ultra. MK Ultra is definitely a rapper. You think? Yeah, that's just I'm probably one of the Mortal that. Techniques I just friends. Have to, I just have to believe that. That's, that's just like a Mortal Techniques friend. Yeah, right. There's no doubt. <laughs> Operation Chaos was uh, was a spinoff from uh, from a Bay Area. A Dude, Ber- a Berkeley our listeners are on the <laughs> our listeners are on the edge of their seat. What is MK Ultra? <laughs> oh yeah, so I was saying MK Ultra was uh, experiments by. Um, the Defense Department and the CIA and various other front groups, which operated throughout the university system in the United States and Canada, uh, and in the hate As- Ashbury, uh, Asbury, Asbury, hate Asbury Free Clinic, which was allegedly run by hippies as like a volunteer thing, as it turns out, had funding from MK Ultra, mm. had funding from CIA. There's fronts. no such thing as a free clinic. Exactly, you're gonna get tested on by LSD. You're going to turn into a sex crazed psycho killer. 
if you get free shit. Now, That's hold what on, Margaret, Sean. Margaret Thatcher said that. Now, Sean. Yeah. You're telling me that the U.S. government used, government. L- used LSD to brainwash Johns and countercultural yeah. people. Mm-hmm. You want me to believe that? I do, because uh, they got documents. There's documents. And it's just true. It's just true, yeah. They actually just did it. Just just like uh, COINTELPRO. Google MKUltra. That's Google what you're trying. MKUltra. You're trying to tell me that I should Google MKUltra. I'm trying to tell you it's not my job to educate you and All that right. you should Google it. And uh, I'll leave my Venmo in the show notes. <laughs> <I've> <laughs> We're going to cut you out of the Patreon and just you... <laughs> just. Just if you tips. like what Sean says, just Venmo Send him a tip to his, <laughs> to his private phone number, which you will now have. <laughs> oh, that would be a real doozy. Dude, where, where were we? I'm, I'm so um, lost. We were, uh, I'm so spun out on this CBD. <laughs> I've been meaning to talk to you about your sleepy D problems. I met this um, hippie man. I was hitchhiking on, on the PCH, and I met a hippie man. And he's, he's like, like, you like THC, bro? I got something for you. Yeah. CBD, by the way, is also a shadowy conspiracy of the Israeli government. Israel. Oh yeah. CBD was made by Israel. Why? To sell more soda streams. Do they want us to not be anxious? Maybe. Do they want us? What do they want us to be calm about? Do they want us to recover from our workout faster? Do they want us to sleep better? Or why do they want us to sleep? Is it somehow bad? I don't know. I mean, I when I consume drugs, I don't assume there's Zionism in them, but we'll see what changes take place as the night goes on. If I become a um, rabid Israel supporter... You're just going to turn into a gummy worm, <laughs> a bodega gummy worm. I'm going to bimbo-fy into Scarlett Johansson and try to sell you soda streams. <laughs> I hope that happens. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> and uh, so... There's there's other holes in the Bugliosi story, you know, as you would imagine by a guy that has bug in his name. Um, the guy's not very trustworthy. He was the singer for The Cure. Mm-hmm. There's also the name of um, Charles Manson's parole officer when he got out of prison. Took the name of his parole officer like Trotsky did. Yeah. That Basically, The Cure is a Trotskyist band. That might have been true at some point. Maybe. Uh, I was reading today, uh, Morrissey's always been a racist shit. You didn't know that? No, I, I mean, I don't care. Uh, I didn't care to know it, but I, I learned it today. It has like he, always been true. He palled, ar- he palled around with the National Front and shit in the yeah. 80s and 90s. What yeah. a fucking piece of shit. And But the thing is, like like with any racist piece of shit, you point that out to people. Because people have known. And, uh, Show them the receipts. I mean, he wasn't hanging out with the National Front in the 80s. No, he, there was a, there was in 1989, there was, I forget if it was a Smiths or a Morrissey concert. It was like on the edge when the Smiths break up and he goes solo. But uh, apparently there were a ton of National Front uh, and skinheads in the crowd. And he purposefully came out wrapped in a Union Jack. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in retrospect, yes, it's clear what was going on. Right. But at the time, you could say that he's, you know, doing some sort of detournement or whatever. And they, and everybody did. Yeah. And I, did. I could see why that's plausible. But ultimately, I think Robert Smith is um, is basically the kryptonite. He's the Antifa to the to the Morrissey um, fascismo. But Robert Smith was the. But he also killed an Arab. He killed an Arab, and he, he admitted also, to it in that one song. Yeah, 
You know Jordan Peterson doesn't know the difference between Camus and Foucault? That's messed up. Yeah. What a fucking dirtbag. Remember when everyone talked about Jordan Peterson He's all the time? He's gone now. Zizek destroyed him. It was so Zizek good. Zizek literally destroyed him with facts and logic. I know. I didn't have any... Well, not with facts and logic. I didn't have any takes when that came out, if only because everybody else had a take, and I figured there wasn't really a reason to have a take. But in retrospect, I think that really was a turning point in the life of uh, Jordan B. Peterson. And this Everyone country. thought that apples would defeat him, but it was Zizek. <laughs> Zizek might have slipped him some cider before the debate. We mm-hmm. don't even know. But in all seriousness, Jake is coming back. But let's just plow through this. Manson, right? He goes to prison several times. He spends 23 of his first 32 years in prison. One of those times when he goes to federal prison is for parole violation, right? The United States carceral system is pretty fucking tough on you when you're on parole you have to like show up to the office you have to sign in you can't really leave the area you have to be getting a job you have to have a phone number right otherwise they send you back to jail in the two years leading up to the manson killings charles manson and the family did so many fucking crimes not only did they do crimes that they got away with by this parole officer, Robert Smith, who, by the way, went from having 130 clients down to one when Charles Manson gets out of prison and his one client was just Charles Manson. And Robert Smith also was CIA funded. He was part of an experiment dealing with amphetamines and violence during the same time getting money through CIA fronts. His parole officer, Robert Smith, allowed him not only to be indicted for various charges, but be convicted of charges and not go back to prison. Manson and his followers essentially had a blank check, almost like somebody was watching them and making phone calls and making sure that they didn't, that Manson did not get thrown back into lockup. And again, the only implication you can get from that is that he was either an informant or that he was being used or at least monitored by very powerful forces, i.e. the CIA and this entire kind of, let's just say, deep state apparatus that exists in this very turbulent time of the 60s and 70s that is doing a lot of dirty tricks. So it's not only after, for the four months, after the killings that Manson and the family are basically free and almost don't get caught. They only get caught on an accident. But in the time before that, it's almost like Manson is given free reign you know, to do whatever he wants, to steal cars, to dose pe- random kids with LSD and almost kill them, to uh, commit various sex crimes, to just like travel all over the country and pull people into his weird LSD. Things that shouldn't happen when you're on parole, but happened in the case of Charles Manson. So again, the question is, what connection did he have to powerful groups and powerful interests, if any? And uh, that's really, I think, the most fascinating thing without wrapping it up in a bow, right, and saying this is exactly what happens in this book, which everybody should check out. The author really dives down deep for 20 years and figures out all the ways in which this very easy helter skelter narrative gets a little complicated when you get off that bugliosi and uh, get onto that insane clown posse, you know. So we, we mentioned the term parapolitics earlier. And I have a theory about it. Basically, what Sean just said, I think is probably... I trust Sean enough as a historian. He's got a good bullshit detector. I have a bullshit detector. I didn't. I, I myself did not want to go down this rabbit hole, but this yeah. kind of brought me down it, and I found it Much plausible Much like Tim enough. O'Neill himself. Yes, indeed. Tom O'Neill himself. Tim O'Neill. Um, uh, but, so, I think 
so my my theory of parapolitics is on one end there's a spectrum. On one end is conspiracy theories. Alex Jones, right. David Icke, yep. uh Protocols of the Elder of Zion, right. William Cooper. It's all the same shit. It's all the same even if it's not fucking fucked up and racist and anti Semitic or whatever, even if it's got this kind of leftist tinge to it, it's all the same logic, which is building a narrative instead of revealing the way the world works it mystifies it right. it, it tries to demonstrate a um a powerlessness of you to do anything about it because you're talking about a fiction that's ever evolving ever mm-hmm. shifting if there's any evidence against it it can change and it's very and, overdetermined um, and unassailable as well and it's not necessarily marginal QAnon is i think fair to say a mass phenomenon right sure. now um, so that's one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, you have Jim Acosta. Hmm. Jake Tapper. You have Jake. Yeah. You've got. History uh, Channel. You've got all these. <laughs> <laughs> I think History Channel might be parapolitical at this point, actually. Uh, ancient um, aliens, yeah. You've fair. got this this pseudo, you know, almost equally as bullshit as the conspiracy theory shit. That's vanilla normal. But like shit. just on the other side of the spectrum. Right. This pseudo objectivity, right? This idea that we are just we're just telling the truth, and that's like the ideology of it too. Yes. Like the ideology of conspiracy theories is like we're just asking questions, but they're building a narrative. And the ideology of uh, journalism is we are just reporting the facts, but right. they are absolutely building a narrative. And it's not it's not conspiratorial. It's just what they do. It's just they're so blind to their ideology yep. and to their professional stakes in it. That's just. They just have to talk about Russia every day for two years until it's not convenient anymore, and then they shift course. I think in between these two extremes is parapolitics. Parapolitics. This is a term coined by Lobster Magazine, which was a uh, basically a JFK. Like Jordan, Jordan Peterson's first <laughs> uh, outlet. Yeah, It's basically a JFK assassination fanzine from England cool. <laughs> in the 80s. Wow, yeah, you can find real, it on Scripty. Some real winners subscribing to that one. Um, I want a copy. I mean, zine culture was like... Like it used to be, you would subscribe to some weirdo's newsletter and get into it instead of subscribing to, uh, uh, you know, the whatever Lenny letter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's, uh, you know, so the JFK stuff. I'm big into JFK, but yeah. Like, I know I know you're a Catholic and a worker and you love right. JFK. Catholic but, worker. Um, JF, like the JFK stuff is really the birth of this thing that's sort of in between like the absolute wingnut protocols of the elders of zion shit and objective journalism where you can really reasonably say as a reasonable person just observing what's going on something deeply fucked up is going something on something deeply fucked up and happened. that really begins with jack ruby killing yes. leah harvey oswald yep. and if you look at who jack ruby is it's yep. kind of like that uh one of the characters you were talking mm-hmm. about Reeve um, Whitman. Yeah, who yeah. was just kind of like there. weirdly everywhere. Connected with the mafia. And then with shows Astro, up. Castro groups connected with yeah. intelligence, yeah. And then he just shows up at this crucial moment to like totally change the story by killing Oswald. And as a reasonable person, you should say, what is going on right. here? And you can absolutely go down the rabbit hole to one end of the spectrum where this was like, you know, the work of lbj or the aliens or the lizards or whatever or you can just recognize that there is a deeper narrative to 
everything that yes. we see that we can approach with this sort of critical perspective. We can say that there are intelligence agencies, they have objectives, and try to work backwards from there. Not work forwards. Conspiracy theories work forwards. They say the you know the the KGB is they doing this. They torture the facts until they give up the uh-huh. yeah yeah like you know this person owned this property, so they would want this to happen. They're trying to build a narrative from there. We're trying to go, the parapolitical perspective tries to work backwards. And this is where the real conspiracy theories or the real conspiracies get revealed, Mm. like Operation Gladio, Propaganda Due. The comparison between this Manson affair and the JFK assassination is a perfect one. Uh, Because, as you said, at the end of it, we're not left with with another Pat story, just like Helter Skelter, or that Oswald was the lone shooter. We're not even left with a true sense of what exact social forces and deep state, quote-unquote, forces were out there that prosecuted and implemented these plans. But as you said, what we are left with is a kind of a, a tapestry, right? Uh, the working of some sort of subterranean forces that, as you said, always exist in society. And in the course of reading this book and then also that Hoover book and then a lot of stuff on JFK, I have a lot of time on my hands. I kind of came up with a visual metaphor for these sort of things. So I had to, right? As I went down this rabbit hole, uh, as I allowed myself to kind of be inundated by all these facts in the Manson case, I had to kind of wrap my head around how do you synthesize, you know, how do you bring together a rigorous historical materialist analysis? Which Leonardo DiCaprio. Yes. He played Hoover. <laughs> yep. He played the dude in the Hollywood <laughs> Nights movie. Yep. He played the Titanic guy. He played the He aviator. played the Wolf of Street. Do you know how much... Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes connections. That was a weird Military man. money, yeah. Yep. He was definitely involved in some deep state shit. So maybe Leo really is... He's the, he's the visual metaphor, really. Just look at that cherubic face, and that is the face of the deep state. It's I, I don't Leonardo like Caprio. looking at his face. No, I don't I know either. he's supposed to be hot. Yeah, there's just something wrong with his face. He's an amazing actor. Yeah, he's, he's but I good. don't want to like him because of his fucking face. Yeah, that's fair enough. I mean, listen, all of us are disgusted by something. I'll look at Brad Pitt. Right, he's an attractive man. He looks good. He's he becomes a better actor as time goes on. He's too. not half the actor of Leonardo DiCaprio or Keanu Reeves. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Keanu Reeves is the synthesis. He is the synthesis. Oh, the synthesis. I was going to talk about the synthesis. All right, let's get to the synthesis. Yeah, the synthesis. So negate that negation. I'm going to negate the negation here. I'm going to do some dialectics. And um, so how do, you, how do you combine a rigorous analysis of exploitation and domination as is expressed through time uh, as we analyze the very forces, in fact, the, the, laws, of, the laws of motion, right, of, um, ca- of the capitalist economy, the capitalist world economy, but of course also how that intersects with political power. How do you match that with a very sort of tendentious and partial but very important analysis of the things that are under the surface? So for this, I, I kind of, this visual metaphor came to me, and if you imagine the Jake uh, Acosta world, right, the world of like normie reporting, they see a white sheet, you know, that is society. They can see, you know, everything. Everything's clear. The facts are just to be reported. Whereas underneath that, there's some force that is basically sowing giant 
threads, red threads into the underneath oh the bottom of the sheet. With the veil of Maya? Yes. And every once in a while, oh you'll see this red thread pop up on that white sheet and then go back down underneath, right? As somebody threads their way along this, this sheet. Those events like the JFK assassination, like this Manson thing, like Gladio, right? We only see the pinprick, mm. right? We only glance, glance for one second. But who's what's, sewing the thread? What's on the flip side of that, which isn't somebody sewing the thread. What it is, in fact, are tons of different threads, which represent different <gasps> power centers oh within society. God. And they're all connected and they're all woven into a tapestry, but one that we can barely ever see and it doesn't replace it's not a uh, social force that replaces right the society that we normally see in everyday life but it's complementary to that right so this parapolitics this deep politics right is always under the surface and it always exists and it's not a replacement for historical materialism or understanding social and class forces in fact it is their expression but merely in a topsy-turvy and upside-down and subterranean way. So what we want to do is we want to flip that sheet upside down and we want to see what's written underneath. we got to make a hole in the sheet. You cut the <laughs> hole in the sheet. So to be serious about the sheet metaphor, yes. to me your sheet is the layer between what we can perceive yes. with our, our senses, the sensuous world of forms, of every, everything solid and fixed. Mm -hmm. But on the other side is the alienated, fetish world of capital, mm -hmm. where anything is possible. Because you have so much money, you can just do whatever you want. You could destroy a country just because you're a weirdo. Yeah, we you, did that. You can fuck a bunch of kids. Yep. Uh, you can invest a lot of money in putting your brain in a computer or whatever. Sure. But it's a it's a false uh, dichotomy between the two. it's the same world. Right, there's, exactly. There's just a sheet dividing. That's it. why the the threads are in the sheet. Let me right. use another another metaphor, right, on how you you square these two things. Now, when I'm the, gonna start playing some like beatnik bongo <laughs> music in the back. Yeah, man. So when David Icke he talks about the conspiracy of the lizard people, it is very much a conspiracy that talks about elements, right? We're talking about elements. Elements, the lizard people or the CIA or uh, the deep state in general, right? These elements, these cabals within society that dictate how the future will go. This is the conspiratorial mindset that there is one element within society, within the state, within the world that dictates everything that moves forward, right? They bend the world to their will. What I would say instead is that a better way to look at it is what is an element made up of but molecules? Mm. We have to have a molecular analysis of this parapolitical world, right? Are you because saying that the universal exists in the particular? In the particular. Are you saying that we can understand the depravity understand. of the capitalist elites yeah. in the actions of our landlords and our bosses? I can, I can indeed say that, yeah. I, I would also say, too, that when you've got something like the JFK assassination, right? What you have, if you look at it honestly and you look at all the evidence, you don't have a solution to it. I don't think we ever will. But what you see are the mafia, anti-Castro-Cuban paramilitary groups. You have uh, elements of the government, not the entire government, but elements of you know the CIA, FBI. And one whatever. militant reading boy. And one militant reading boy. 
you have all of these aspects of society that represent power structures, right, that exist, that each have a kind of a different prerogative and a different reason for existing. The mafia exists to make money and also to protect people doing those crimes, right? The mafia isn't always connected to elements of the deep state. However, uh, if you know anything about how organized crime works, it corrupts all these elements of power. They might not always come together to act on things. And in fact, there's different elements within the mafia and there's different elements within the CIA. Some of them maybe are combined with the interests of some segment of capital, right? Others of them might be part of, you know, might be attached to some segment of some government. Some might say the state is one big mafia. You, you might say that. So the molecular view of parapolitics, as I am basically synthesizing it for you right now, is that it's not to say that there is a deep state or to say that there is a conspiracy. What you have are very contingent and very complicated but very powerful forces that are working oftentimes against each other but sometimes in concert mm. in order to buttress the power of the state, to buttress power of one fraction of capital against another, and to make sure, most importantly, that the stage is set always on the ground and the wider society for an increase in the accumulation of wealth and also the exercise of domination and political mm, power on the state and security, right? But, uh, on behalf of powerful actors within the state and outside of it. And I think that, again, something like this Manson shit or this JFK shit, you see popping to the surface with all of these kind of diffused and often contradictory social actors and powerful forces. You can see glimpse at that moment, something that always exists under the surface that is not a replacement for understanding capitalism in the state, but one modality in which capital and the state operate and perpetuate themselves and accumulate not just wealth, but of course power as well. So that is my synthesis of dialectical materialism, historical materialism that is, so and uh, parapolitics. The, there's this concept yeah. that, let me see if I understand this. Yeah. There's this concept that there's, uh, there's law and there's crime. And crime, uh, it's, you often might find in uh, certain radical circles, mm. this fetishization of crime and illegalism right. yeah. and breaking the law and even the mafia, mm -hmm. even the concept that there's like this kind of honor among thieves. Yes. But what you're saying is that is that negation of law, of crime itself needs to be negated. Indeed. Am I be correct? Yes, because ultimately... As we know, there is no ultimate law. There's no natural law. In fact, the laws as we see them are the Jake Tapper laws, right? The laws that are on the book, on the books right now and have been throughout history. And I think if you look at it, often these underground networks are something like a permanent government, right? That arose again in Iran-Contra, right? That the, the realization that Congress can set laws that says that that say that the United States will not fund right-wing death squads in Central America. And yet, when you look, it takes you know a few months and it only comes out several years later that a massive operation is able to come off of its feet out of nowhere, again, applying, like using various forces from the military, organized crime, uh, drug dealing, all across the world. By the way, this is, a, this is a second definition of parapolitics. There's two definitions. Oh. 
One is the JFK conspiracy stuff, mm-hmm. like trying to investigate intelligence agencies. The second is the paramilitary narco politics, yes. specifically in Colombia. Uh, have you ever read um, Peter Dell Scott? No. Oh, I strongly encourage you to to read him. Um, he was he, he, his books really brought me to this place and trying to understand it. The problem with Peter Dell Scott is that ultimately he's a lib. Uh, so he believes that there was a kind of prelapsarian uh, liberal democracy that was taken over by and um, uh, ultimately destroyed by uh, this sort of these sort of deep state actors. And that if we can only get back to like constitutionalism and liberty and norms, that somehow, you know, we could save the uh, American past and save the American future. But, um, yeah. The idea that there is a nexus, a power nexus, and a wealth nexus between forces that are above ground and legal and forces that are below ground and illegal, I think has its its purest sort of, um, its purest iteration in the world of international drug dealing. Because if you, again, go into these topics, you can see that oftentimes, not always, but very often, when the United States military over the, in the post-war period, right, going back to the 40s, has gone into an area, whether that's Vietnam and Cambodia, whether that's Afghanistan, whether that's Central and South America, when we have gone into those areas to do imperialism, right, um, oftentimes what follows in our wake are narcotics. And you could say, oh, well, that's just an accident, right? So, of course, all the heroin smuggled into the United States you know, during the Vietnam War, well, that was just an accident. I mean, that's just a, a quirk of history. Hey, I'm like, back from the bathroom. <laughs> What's oh, going Jake, on? Hi. You want to, uh, we're talking drugs now. What do you got? Oh, man. I've done some drugs. I've done acid. <laughs> Whoa, I've dude. done Molly. <laughs> I've uh, done alcohol. I'm Alex Patak. <laughs> I, th- I think that the... Th- the uh, the red thread that really brings all this yeah. stuff together is these the spectacular violence. Yes, um, and you see in the Manson family this kind of exceptional violence that justifies this you know distrust of hippies, this uh, ma- massacre of of uh, Vietnam War protesters, drug wars to take out people who are smoking cannabis you know Mm -hmm. you know how does that get used of course against majority people of color um but in this spectacular violence they want you know the way that it's made to look exceptional with a character like manson who's got like a swastika on his forehead and all of his followers are the part are lunatics you need to see in that particular the universal, mm, the mm. violence of the state. Yes. The violence of Vietnam, which, you know, kind of led to a lot of the hysterical elements of the hippie movement that was otherwise largely this like horrified response at mm. what the war is and mm-hmm. how senseless it was and the need to stop it. Uh, as important as it is to like put the Manson family in perspective, it's also important not to fetishize. That kind of violence, right. the way that Bernadette Dorn did, yes. did apparently, Bad the way Bernadette. that uh, radical people might might fetishize the mafia, right. um, or you know, crime networks in general. 
um, we have to understand that these are just capitalists. Yep. This is just a parastate formation. There's nothing noble about the outlaw, per se. They might make for some great stories, but there's nothing inherently revolutionary about living outside the law, especially because, as Andy said, even outside the law, you still have power, you still have violence, you still have domination, and you certainly still have exploitation. And if Jeffrey Epstein has showed us anything, right, that is often a gendered violence. And as Manson showed us, it's also a racial violence. But just in general, you know, the outlaw is not a hero. And that's why it's really messed up if you call your podcast something like Chapo Trap House. <laughs> oh, I would... I not would... that our name isn't a reference <laughs> to a fucked up violent thing yeah, as well. Yeah, no, that's true. A shaking off, if you will. That's what Intifada means. Yes, it's just yes, a shaking yes. off. It's just like that's you shrug your shoulder yeah. and shit falls. It's like, it's like eh. Atlas Shrugged, you know? It's like, the, it's like that beautiful book. But yeah, I would say too that, you know, with all this talk of like... You know, these these spectacular events, these spectacular moments of violence in U.S. history. And I think that as the sort of crisis of the American system unfolds, unfortunately, we're going to see more of this sort of um, episystemic violence happen. You know, I think that when something like the JFK assassination assassination happens, um, that is not how these powerful forces want to act all the time. Those are kind of last last ditch efforts right in order to stop various so you think it was the state no i don't i don't no no okay i think it's i think it's parapolitical right but what i'm saying is that like if you think it's parapolitical you think it was it's either it was was oswald just a crazed communist on his own or no you don't think he was the lone shooter i don't think not he might have been the lone shooter but there was definitely a conspiracy Uh, my point is is that is that don't look at don't look at the even even this underground, this subterranean um, constellation of forces that we're talking about as always evident, being evident in things like spectacular violence, like 9/11, right? So 9/11 can happen without there being some sort of parapolitical actor, you know, uh, firing up the airplanes and like taking them off the tarmac and, and Bush doing the whole thing and Cheney just like massacring everybody with uh, AK-47s on some runway somewhere. Um, It's more subtle than that. And the point of looking at these very kind of momentous moments of assassination and violence is that they reveal the underneath, the underground, the upside down, if you will, that always exists uh, in the normal, brutal and violent running of capitalist world society. Hey guys, I'm back from the bathroom. 